Good morning. Um, it's with some trepidation that we come to Joshua as a book and trying to fit it into the Bible story as well this morning. So let's pray um, for God to help us and pray that he might speak to each of us. Let me pray. Our Father, we confess how easily and how often our hearts can be hard. And I say we long that you might soften them as you speak to us through Joshua chapter 1. Help us to see what a kind and faithful and good God you are. Pray that you would speak to each of us in our different contexts and situations, our our different um, things going on in our lives, but that we might hear your voice this morning. In your son's name. Amen. One of, them, one of the really big questions at the start of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, is the so what now question. So have a look down at the text, and it's pretty blunt as Bex read it for us. Verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. And so you see the why of the what now question. Moses has not been a bit part player in the Bible so far. Moses is not an extra in the background. In in fact, through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he has been the key human character. And to begin the book with Moses out of the picture is a surprising start. We're meant to ask, what now, Lord? Maybe if you were around for the Numbers series, as Matt was reminding us and the kids Um, in their slots, you remember some of Moses' importance. It was Moses who had spoken face-to-face with the Lord. It was Moses, at least in human terms, um, who had rescued the people from Egypt. It was Moses who had led the people through the Red Sea. It was Moses who had spoken the words of God to the people. It was Moses who had mediated for the people, pleaded for the people again and again and again as they had constantly grumbled and rebelled and moaned and wandered off. In human terms, so much hung around Moses. And so what now? His death wasn't a surprise. We knew he wasn't going to make it into the promised land. Do you remember? He he mistrusted the Lord. He did his own thing. He he struck the rock rather than spoke to the rock. And yet take a step back and it's interesting because so many Bible books begin with the death of a national leader. It's a really interesting phenomenon. Exodus starts with the death of Joseph. Judges with the death of Joshua. Two Samuel death of Saul, two kings with King Ahab. Why do they do that? Why do books begin with this death? I take it the writer is saying to us, the writers are saying to us, your question is, what now? My answer is, business as usual. It's the same as before. Leadership is expendable. But it's the same God. The same promises, the same faithfulness. It's a new start. There might be new characters involved, but there are no new purposes in one sense. This is God's story. He is at work. So have a look down at verse 1. Joshua chapter 1. It's, I think, 216 if you've got the church Bibles. I'm going to leave it on that one there. Verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun. Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the River Jordan into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. And so do you see those words are so loaded with context. 
the language of land in verse 2, the language of promise in verse 3. This is the continuation of the story. It's a story that's already building up steam. And forgive me for taking a step back, but for some of us it might be useful to try and see what this story is. The story so far is that God is a kind God who makes good promises. Out of complete obscurity, because of his grace, he chose a people for himself. He elected them. He promised them this land. A land of plenty and provision and peace and rest. A land from where they could be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. But they find themselves in Egypt. And they're crying out in pain at the midst of the injustice. And it looks like God's promises are thwarted, but he can't be foiled by Egypt. And so he rescues his people through Moses. And Moses leads them from Egypt through the desert to the very edge of the promised land. And do you remember at this time last year, Numbers chapter 13, they reach the edge of the land. And finally they're there. And quietly 12 of them just slip in, spies, one from each family, scouting in to check out the opposition, to check out this land that God has promised them. And it's so beautiful. And it is so fertile. And the grapes look like they've been genetically modified. They're enormous. But so are the people. And the cities are well fortified and defended. And they look, they look at their problems rather than the God who had made them the promises. Or at least ten of them do. Because there's one guy called Caleb and one guy called Joshua who trusted the Lord to give them the land. And they urge the others, trust the Lord. But they don't. And to be honest, what happens next is a, is a bit of a mess. Nothing is photoshopped and nothing is airbrushed from the generation who chose not to trust God. It's 40 years of wilderness wandering, 40 years of discipline from the Lord. And here we are now, Joshua 1, just after some serious sermons in Deuteronomy, edge of the, edge of the land, re-giving of the law. Here they are, Joshua 1 ready to enter the land that God promised them. I take it even today, national transitions in leadership are always slightly precarious times. It's always slightly uncertain and stressful. But what we'll see in Joshua is that God's plans are not thwarted by the death of a leader. God is the one who makes promises. And so God is the one who keeps his promises. He will deliver on those promises. And so what I hope and I pray we will see as a church over these next couple of months is that God is faithful and that we can trust him. But more than that, because God is faithful and we can trust him, then we will live in the light of him and what he is like. So you'll see again and again and again, I think as we go through, God's faithfulness towards his people, but also the response of the people to trust this faithful God. Do we believe him? Is God's faithfulness just something we have on a piece of paper or do we actually believe him and actually live in the light of it? I think in Joshua, both are there, both are important and both need to be held together. So let's just jump in and try and see some of that being worked out in this first chapter. Um, just to give you the kind of broad overview of the chapter, if you like that kind of thing. Essentially, I think what we have is a, kind of a flow of commissioning that's going on. So firstly, you have the Lord speaking to Joshua as the leader of the people. But then secondly, you have Joshua as the leader of the people speaking to the people. 
So it goes from the Lord to Joshua to the people. And so verse 1 to 9, first point, Joshua is commissioned by God. I think structurally that's how it works. Have a look down with me. Let me read again from verse 3 to 6. And as I read it, try and kind of soak in some of the facets of the promise, if you like. There'll be some key words that you will perhaps get your your mind twitching as you try and remember where they come from. Verse 3 to 6. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people in to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. You see some of the, the aspects he speaks about. Firstly, I guess quite obviously, he talks about the land, the entirety of the land from the Euphrates in the east to the Mediterranean in the west. That's all of the land of Canaan. It's huge. It's a huge landmass. And the description here, I think it, it, um, it matches the original covenant from Genesis 15 made with Abraham. God is reiterating the promise in full. I think in today's terms we're talking about modern Israel, but also Jordan, lots of Saudi Arabia, half of Iraq, all of Lebanon, part of Syria, and all of Kuwait, I think. I did study geography at uni, but I'm not that good at it. But what's striking is if you know your Bible geography, do you know the land was never actually that big? I think that's striking. Why? Why did they never take and live in and enjoy all the land that God promised them, the whole area? I think the basic answer is they got comfortable and they compromised. Just as the previous generation was unwilling to trust as they entered the land, so this generation, in a similar way, was unwilling to trust as they took the land. John Calvin, the theologian in his commentary on Joshua, says it's more than that. He says it comes from, in part, from unbelief. He says God made the promises to them, but finally when it came to it, they didn't actually trust those promises. They didn't enjoy all that God had for them. I'm kind of just on the way past. Isn't that a challenge? This week it's really struck me. Our, our Lord is so gracious and kind and bountiful and generous and good. And so much is ours in Christ. So much is promised to us. He has so many good things for us. All the spiritual blessings in Christ, Paul will say. And of course, there's a now and a not yet element. Some of that is for later. But it's almost as if we can't cope with all his goodness now. There's too much of it. And so we sort of almost choose not to enjoy it, to, to experience it. We, we want to be safe. We prefer that sense of safety and trusting self. And, and so we end up even not enjoying all that he has for us in one sense. The people here are promised the land. And it's a huge promise. Secondly, in verse 5, they're promised victory. That is, no opponent can thwart them. No one can stand in opposition to God. What a comfort for Joshua. This land he has spied out already, him and Caleb. This enormous land spreads out in front of them, full of enormous people, cities, armies, challenges, weapons, home advantage, power. And yet Joshua has God on his side. And if he trusts him and if he looks to him for strategy and strength, he will always win. We'll, we'll see that as the weeks unfold. God promises victory, but thirdly, then he promises presence in verse 5. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And friends, that's the best thing. This is what undergirds everything else. This is what set Israel apart in the wilderness. This is what will set Israel apart in the land. God is with them. Just as with Moses, he will be with Joshua too. To lose the presence of God is to lose the power of God in one sense. I take it as well on the way past. It's the same for us. God has committed himself to us by his spirit. He comes and he lives within us as individuals, as a church community. And that's the best thing. But so often we get caught up in wanting things from him. Wanting the gifts that he gives us. Wanting the stuff we need for the day ahead, which may be really good things. And he loves to give them to us because he's our good father. But when it comes down to it, when push comes to shove, what we need most is him. And we have him. Having him changes how we look at life. When we remember we have him, mountains don't seem quite so mountainous. Challenges don't seem quite so challenging. Hardships don't seem quite so hard. Because he is with us. And so he promises us, he promises his presence. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Doesn't that sound like tonic in your ears if you were Joshua? Imagine being Joshua at this point. Your, your mentor has just died. Edge of this enormous land that you've been in and seen, but you, you, you know the people are huge. Imagine your fears being stilled because you know the Lord is with you. But it doesn't mean, of course, Joshua can just sort of sit back and relax. Kick back, watch it happen. God's faithfulness leads to action. And so famously, we get this call for him to be strong and courageous. Have a look down verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 9 from the Lord. Joshua, be strong and courageous. And then we get at the end of the chapter, verse 18, the, the people reminding Joshua as well what the Lord has said, what he's to do, just in case he forgets. You see, for Joshua to do this, he's got to be brave and bold and courageous. And if you ask me, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Maybe when we're feeling pumped and excited and adrenaline and caffeine going on. But how do you maintain that kind of courageousness in the dark of the night when fears are swirling around? When we feel a little less than courageous? How is Joshua to lead like that then, at that point? I take it, as always in the Bible, the imperatives flow from um, the indicatives. That is, Joshua, do this because of this. Joshua, be strong and courageous because of these truths. And what truths are they? Verse 7 and 8. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant gave you. Don't turn aside from it to the right or the left. You may be successful wherever you go. Verse 8. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Isn't that striking? How can you be strong and courageous, Joshua? You read the law, you obey the law. As you read the law, as you read the scriptures, as you read the Bible, so you remember who your God is and what he has done and what he is like. And you see how beautiful and trustworthy and good he is. And then you can be strong and courageous. This isn't something he's got to stir up inside himself. This isn't search for the hero inside yourself, Joshua. This is read the Bible. 
Remember who your God is. Remember what he's done. Remember what he's like. Then you can be brave. Truth about God shapes our reality. It shapes how we live. But I think here we come to a really important question in Joshua chapter 1. And I feel anxious about sharing this with you. But my question for you is, who am I meant to be in Joshua chapter 1? Who are we? Who am I in the text? Why do I ask that question here? Well, because many and varied are the motivational posters that you can buy to hang on your wall telling you to be strong and courageous. You can get them with lions on, with people climbing cliffs, with big blokes with muscles with surfing, with horses, with stags, and I'm not even joking. You can try it this week. Google image search. But my question is, is this a promise for me? Is this a promise for you? Is God telling me and you to be strong and courageous? What am I meant to do? Where am I meant to be in Joshua chapter 1? See my question? Who am I in Joshua 1? I think I want to say... Is this a promise for us? I want to say no, and I want to say yes. I'm going to say no, first of all. I think primarily because this is a command for Joshua at a particular point in salvation history as he leads the people of God into the promise of God. This is specific. This is key. This is for a context. First and foremost, this is a message for Joshua to remember, to cling on to, as the leader of the people of God. Which means for us it's a book that's meant to provoke and strengthen our confidence in God and his faithfulness to to get us those promises that he's made for us, especially in claiming them, especially to boost our confidence that finally he will get us to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. I say, do you see, for us, we are not foundationally Joshua. Jesus is foundationally Joshua. He is the leader of the people. He is the leader of the people tasked with getting us to the place of rest. He is the leader of the people tasked with leading us into the place of promise. God has given his people a mighty leader, giving them absolute confidence of victory, and his name is Jesus. And we'll have more on him in a bit. Does that mean I want you to get rid of all your motivational posters? Are the recycling lorries of East Oxford going to be full this next Friday morning? I don't think so, because of course we are a people who trust the Lord, who know he is with us, who know he is finally victorious, because we're a people in Christ, and so he trusted even to the point of death. And therefore they are our promises as we follow after him. We're to be strong and courageous because he was strong and courageous. For I take it in chapter 1, we're the people in the background. We are the people whom he will speak to in verse 10 to 18. So if in 1 to 9, Joshua is commissioned by God, then structurally 10 to 18, the people are commissioned by Joshua. So 1 to 9, the faithful Lord commissioning his new man, commissioning Joshua. Now his word comes to Joshua, and Joshua addresses the people, which is good because it shows he's trusting God. Contrast that with Moses. Back in the deserts, the questions he had when God commissioned him, he's like, please, Lord, someone else, leave me alone. This looks like a good start as we first find Joshua. But I take it, our question then needs to be, how are they going to respond? This is edge of the seat moment. This is tense. 
Joshua is not Moses. Moses, the great trusted leader. But here is Joshua. The Lord has entrusted the mantle of leadership. Now will the people listen to Joshua? Will they trust him? Will they follow? Will they obey him? Well, in 10 to 18, you've got two conversations going on. And then they respond to them. So the first one is in 10 to 11. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. That is, God's giving you the land. Guys, we're going in. Get ready. Come on. It's action time. Secondly, verse 12 to 14, there's a bit of small print to deal with. And again, we came across it last year in Numbers 32. Um, you might remember the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are, are farmers. And so they said, can we have this prime livestock land, even though it's not actually in the promised land? And Moses said, all right, but you need to send your soldiers, your fighting men in first, and then you can go back to your farms afterwards. And they will do that. You can read it in Joshua 22. But that's then dealt with. But the point is, the point is Joshua commissions the people, and the people listen. Verse 16, whatever you've commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them, will be put to death, only be strong and courageous. So there's no opposition to his leadership. They will obey him as his generation did to Moses. If the Lord will be with him, verse 17. If, if he will trust the Lord, verse 18. So I'm thinking leadership transition, tick. Ready for the book to unfold, tick. God is faithful. And friends, at this point, second half of Joshua 1, we're to look at the people, we're to listen. We're to see that they're good and faithful God they trust him, they respond. This is a chapter of active obedience. And I think we're meant to ask the question, do we listen to and do we obey God as the people here did? Do they take their faithful God and live in the light of his faithfulness? Do we do that? Do we trust and obey? Are we zealous for him as they were? And I think that is a legitimate and right and important question and there will be time in home groups to think about that question. I think we have to from the chapter. But as we finish, I say finish in a loose sense, um, <laughs> I don't want that challenge hanging in our ears, because I'm not sure that is the main thrust of Joshua chapter 1. I think the two go hand in hand, and again I say we see both God's faithfulness and their trust in his faithfulness, their active obedience. But I think it is the Lord's faithfulness that we are meant to marvel in from Joshua chapter 1. It's his faithfulness that we're to delight in. So he is the one giving the land to them. He is the one who has made promises for them. He is the one who provides all they need. He is the one who is with them. He is the one who will never leave or forsake them. I think we're meant to see God's faithfulness as the key point. And so as we finish, let's think again about this strong and courageous idea. Think about it, friends. Isn't it even better news? Isn't it even more reassuring for us as Christians that this is not primarily about us? Put your hands up if you think, if you think verse 5 to 9 is about you and you're actually capable of leading the people of God 
into the promised land in this way on a mission like this? Anybody? No hands. Do you know, I think what we need, we need someone who leads us and is not daunted by the task at hand. We need someone who is perfectly shaped and molded by the law of God and the character of God. What we need is someone who fights the battles for us, and so for us to be assured of victory. What we need is someone who, despite pain and suffering, and who is always trusting, always knows God is faithful, does things his way even in the hardest times. What we need is someone who, who does away with all the enemies of God. Someone who we can trust and who can get us to the promised land to enjoy his rest forever. Maybe we look around at our lives and think of the reality and the battles and the stress and the frustrations that we face. And maybe even in those dark times we think, can I trust God and his promises? Can I be sure of seeing him in the new heavens and the new earth face to face? Will he get me there? And so again for us, we need another Joshua. We need, we need another one named the Lord saves. We need one known by his Greek name, Jesus. You see, our Father doesn't give us the new heavens and the new earth because of our own spiritual strength and abilities and prowess. He doesn't give us the new heavens and the new earth because we are sufficiently strong and courageous because if he did, I think it would be pretty empty. We don't battle in. We don't earn it. We don't grasp it. But our inheritance is ours because of Jesus' obedience for us. He leads. He is faithful. He is victorious. As he dies on the cross and he's raised again. So I want to say in one sense, your place in the new heavens and the new earth, doesn't depend on you. He's done it. He is victorious. He has gone before you. And he just says, cling to me. Because Jesus is the mighty Joshua. He is the Lord who saves. And we can trust him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he has done it for us. Thank you that he has gone before us. Thank you that he is victorious. Thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for his grace. Might we be a people, please, who cling to him? And in so doing, would we be a people who who live in the light of our faithful God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.